that a whole new world has opened up. So if that was the case last week, I think this week, if we look at the road to Emmaus, is, uh, is not just the evidence that Jesus has resurrected from the dead, but it's really the, the personal touch and grace that Jesus shows us as he meets us. Because what's interesting about Luke's gospel, if you're familiar with the Bible, is that Luke's gospel is all about the outcast and the ordinary and the people that culture shunned. And so Luke goes to great lengths to, to show that the gospel includes all people, sinners like us and ordinary people like us. And he's always going to go to great lengths to, to show the compassion and grace of mercy that Jesus has with people, varieties of people. And Jesus is doing just that on the road to Emmaus. That he's coming and he's meeting them in their time of, of worry, in their time of sadness. And so you could say that, that the difference here is not just the evidence that would bolster our faith, but it's a personal touch of Jesus and the grace of Jesus that comes and meets us and how he meets these disciples on the road to Emmaus. So, so what do you encounter this personal touch of Jesus and this grace of touch with these disciples? Well, is that Jesus gives us new eyes to see. Gives us new eyes to see. So as the, the narrative unfolds, we, we notice that this is a few hours after the resurrection. It's the afternoon. So verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. So this is hours after Jesus has resurrected from the dead. And, and, and what's interesting about even that verse is that you know that these disciples have already kind of, kind of thrown up their heads and say, well, I guess nothing happened, really. But they're going back to their homes in Emmaus, a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem. Now, just so you know, in the first century, there was no Uber. Uh, there was no Lyft, right? There, there, there was no way. And this is a long, imagine, wearing sandals. I mean, sandals are great, but you get seven miles in the dust and the dirt. Uh, it's going to for you. So, so essentially, they're just hanging their heads and going, okay, I guess we're going back to our lives and back to, you know, this Jesus is dead and he's supposed to be alive, but we don't really see him. So they're walking back, and then Jesus obviously shows up. Again, the personal touch of Jesus, he knows, he knows what's going on, right? Even when we see their interaction, it wasn't like, what are you talking about? Like, Jesus says that all the time, right? What are you thinking? Wink, wink. I already know what you're thinking. So he kind of creepily sneaks up. I don't think he did it creepily. I mean, he was just there. But, you know, not like a soccer or some kind of weird thing. But he's, he's there on the road with them, but they don't recognize him. While they're talking and discussing, Jesus himself draws near and he goes with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. So, so he, he shows up to them, and they don't recognize him. But, but notice the conversation. Luke is very clear on how they're experiencing this loss of Jesus and this resurrection that they're not sure what just happened. Verse 17, they're still looking sad. Then one of them, 18, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? So obviously there's no recollection of who this Jesus is yet. Like, like, do you know what just happened? Like, this is a big deal. Like, are you out of the loop, right? Have you checked your social media feed? I mean, are you just really that out of touch? They have no clue. Or they have no clue who this Jesus is. Like, obviously he knows. He's kind of the main character. But there's a sadness. There's a confusion there, just like there was in John 20, right? When they show up to the, the tomb, they weren't expecting resurrection. And just like these disciples on the road to Emmaus, they weren't expecting any of this to happen. 
And so the interaction goes on, and, and he's not recognized. But, but, but they, if you keep going, you can see that there's, there's this sense that, that all is lost. Jump down to 18, or 19. And he said to them, what things? And they, they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Notice the, this, these phrases in verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find the body, they came back saying that he had not even seen visions of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Do you hear it? Do you hear the sadness, the hopelessness? Well, yeah, he was mighty in power indeed. He was resurrected from the dead, but we haven't seen him. He was supposed to save Israel, but I don't think that's happened yet. Because here's, here's a, most likely a group of Jewish people who have been oppressed by the Roman Empire. They're under bondage, under slavery, and they, they wanted this Messiah to be a David-like Messiah who would come and wipe out their enemies. But Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' death on the cross was something totally different, not what they expected. Wait a minute, Jesus, you're giving your life into the hands of the enemy? You're letting them put you up on the cross? So instead of wiping out the enemies, you're dying for your enemies? You're forgiving your enemies? I'm so confused right now. And so their expectations of what Jesus was to do and what he was supposed to be about has totally been vanished, and that's why their heads are hanging low. You can just imagine them walking along this road for for miles and miles and just going like, yeah, I guess it's over. Might as well go back to our lives. But we see the kindness and the mercy of Jesus here because he knows where they're at, and he comes and he meets them right in the midst of their pain and right in the midst of their confusion. And there's a lot of debate of why wasn't Jesus recognizable on the road? Like, like they saw him physically resurrected from the dead. And, and, and so we, we see that in verse 16, you know, it says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Like, what is that? We, we saw it in, we, we see it, you know, uh, in John chapter uh, 21, verse 4. You see it in Matthew 28, 17, that, that there's, there's Jesus, he's physically resurrected, but somehow they're not noticing him that is this really him? So what was it? I mean, they debate. Was it his, his resurrected body so different that they didn't notice him? That, that maybe it had a glow to it? We don't really know. I doubt it had a glow to it. But he did look different, right? The, hand, the nails, the, where the nails pierced his hands, his feet were still there. They could see the scars. Later, we'll talk about Thomas in a few weeks where he touched the scars, touched the hands. So, I mean, he's physically alive. He's not a ghost. But what was it about Jesus that they couldn't recognize him? They had been with him. They had seen him. Like, what, what is going on here? But I think there is something else going on here. Is that is it possible, and in the way I understand the Scriptures, and the way I understand faith, is it possible that you can see Jesus but not see Jesus? Anybody uh, see the movie Sixth Sense? I'm going to ruin it for you right now. So if you haven't seen it, it's about 20 years old, so that's on you, but Whatever. So Sixth Sense is this great movie, and you watch this movie, and the first time through, you just go like, oh, great movie, and then you get to the end, and you realize the main character has been dead the whole time. You seen the movie? Now, the second time you watch that movie, there's a whole different experience, right? You see it so differently. 
Oh, yeah, he's dead. Oh, yeah, he's, he's not even looking at him. Oh, yeah, he's in the room, and they're not making eye contact, right? So just brilliant filmmaking, and most of the films that guy made later were horrible, but that's, that's here or there. I'm not a film critic, but that's just my, my strong aff affections and opinions. But, but I love movies like that. Because the whole time you're, you're watching this movie and you're going, oh, I get the story, okay. And then this boy, and he's like, I see dead people, right? I mean, they, this is a great, great line. And then you watch it in and go, oh, now I see. So is it possible that we can see Jesus, we can talk about Jesus, we can read the scriptures, we can write about him, we can have our opinions about him, we can blog him, but actually not see him? I think so. And that's why Jesus gives us new eyes to see. It wasn't until Jesus gives them eyes to see that they realized that they were looking in the wrong end of the telescope and didn't understand the story. They had all these expectations put on Jesus. Well, he's got to be this kind of Messiah, and he's got to take out the enemies this way, and it was all backwards. And, and what I love about this, because it bolsters my faith, is to say that if I'm going to write a fantasy, if I'm going to write a metaphor, if I'm going to write something that's not true at all, it's not going to look like this, Right? No, everybody's going to be, everyone's going to believe and everyone's going to have everything worked out and everyone's going to be happy in the end. That's not like this at all, right? Mary in the tomb and the disciples, they don't even, they're not expecting resurrection at all. And neither are we. Because dead people don't come back to life. Even if you do see dead people. It's not what they expected. But it's the story that Jesus is telling them and something has to happen inside of them that they can begin to actually see and realize that all that the scriptures were saying in the Old Testament were coming true in Jesus. But you and I have to have eyes to see. Notice with me in verse 24 and 27. They did not see, in verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can you imagine being part of that Bible study? the master teacher, Jesus, the creator and redeemer of the entire universe, walking you through the Old Testament going, there I am, there I am, there I am, there I am. It's all been about me. Because the way you and I are to read the scriptures is to understand that Jesus is the central figure of the scriptures. It's not you. It's not me. It's, it's not the church. It's not ideas. It's not morality. It's not principles for living. That the main hero of the scriptures and to interpret the scriptures well and to interpret them rightly, just as Jesus is doing here, is he's going back to the Old Testament saying, all of it was pointing to me. All of it was pointing to the Messiah who's going to live and die and rise again and come back. All of it was about him, this redemptive plan. And it's going to be a little bit different than what you were expecting, but just hang on. All of this fulfillment in the Old Testament of, of sacrificial laws and commands that you and I could not keep even in our best days are going to be fulfilled in me and all the, the ways in which you've tried to be good and you've tried to follow the rules and, and you've fallen on your face time and time again. You can't do it, but there's this Messiah who's coming who's going to fulfill this law perfectly and by faith, his righteousness is going to become your righteousness and it's going to act as if you had never sinned in your whole life, but it's on Jesus' record, not our record. That's just all in the Old Testament and way more. But our eyes have to be open to see that. But that's what it's about. I, I find it fascinating um, that, that we, we can often miss this. Um, 
and, and, and think that we can just, you know, go, well, I, I understand Jesus, I understand what he's doing, I but, but it's God's grace and God's mercy, just like he was on the, on the road to, to Emmaus, to come to them and say, I have to open your eyes, O foolish ones of heart, because you saw me, but you didn't see me. You saw what I did, but you didn't really understand what I did and why it matters. It's why the scriptures talk about being born again, right? John Three. I mean, isn't it interesting that in John's gospel, you remember Nick at night, the famous interaction with Jesus and, and Nicodemus? You know, Nicodemus kind of comes to him in the, in the nighttime and, and kind of, you know, teacher of the law, should know all these things. And yet Jesus says uh, in, in John 3, 3, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I have to give you new eyes to see. It's not just a philosophy of life. It's not just reading something or believing something or good morality or principles for living, but there has to be eyes have to be opened by the Spirit of God to see. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So our eyes have to be open to see and to believe, to, to understand that this Jesus was the Messiah, that he had come that the Old Testament prophesied about. That he was going to die, he was going to rise, but, but there would be an empty tomb, and he is coming again. We need eyes to see. I, I love John 5. Um, Jesus is interacting with the religious rulers of the day who know the scriptures backwards and forward. And he says, you can search the scriptures all you like, but you've got to come to me for life. That's not what they're for. It's not just a head trip, right? So, so in John chapter 5, uh, 37... And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. Interesting. That's what happens when regeneration happens. That the word of God, the truth of God, the reality of God begins to abide in us. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Love that text. You search the scriptures, but you don't know the story. You don't know that it's all about me. It's always been about me, right? Because the, the religious leaders of the day were all about heaping laws and, and regulations on top of people and saying, this is what it's about. It's about being holy and about being pure. And yes, that's a subset of that, the realities of Christ. But, but the story's about him because you can't be holy. You can't be pure. You can't save yourself. You can't forgive yourself. You can't give yourself new life. That you're fully dependent on God to be born and to be born again. And so he says, you can search and you can have PhDs in Semitic languages. You can have a PhD in the Old Testament and actually never see me. And you can know Greek and you can know Hebrew and Aramaic and never see me. You come to me for life. And and that's what Jesus is doing on the road to Emmaus, is saying that you can see me and not see me, but by my grace and by my mercy, I'm opening your eyes to see I find it interesting. I've heard a lot of debates of, of late. Um, there's this new movement called the New Atheism. It's actually not that new, but um, and others that would, would argue that you know the only reason that people are Christians is because they live in the West, um, and so they would say, well, Christianity is a Western religion, and and you know it's, we live in America, and we're you know quote unquote a Christian uh, nation, and so we we you know that's why we're Christians. But if you lived in in the East, you'd probably be a Buddhist or, or Muslim or, or what have you. And I understand what they're trying to say, that, yeah, if you grew up in a certain environment, maybe that's what you would become. But, but I find it very, very interesting is that even if you look at the, the first century and you look at these Jews, is that they had all kinds of options to worship other gods. But they, they lived in the Roman Empire. 
that they had. You know, you go and pick your God. They're all over the place. And yet they became followers of, of Jesus. And you can go and you can look around the world even today and you'll say there's always examples of people that, that have become Christians that were in non-Christian quote-unquote areas, right? I mean, the ranks were in Turkey, right? And people come to Christ that don't, you know, they weren't Christians before. That has nothing to do with culture. But it has everything to do with the Spirit of God wakening a soul to see the beauty of Christ. Because even in, 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 in uh, Muslim religion, I should say, is they don't have any view of regeneration. They don't have any view of being born again. You simply just say, Allah is God, and then you do your prayers, and you follow the rituals, and then you're in. You don't have to have a, a soul awakened to anything. Right? And so it is. That's just me deciding I'm going to do this. In Christianity, we don't believe that at all. We don't believe you can believe unless Jesus opens your heart to him. We don't believe that you can even read the scriptures unless he opens your heart to him. It's not just picking which philosophy of life I think is better because I like Jesus because he just seems like a really loving, nice guy. Something supernatural has to happen for us to believe that he takes dead people and makes them alive. And it's this personal touch of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. He says, I'm going to open your eyes so that you understand the story, that you can really see me for who I really am and what I'm doing. Now, Jesus also gives us, secondly, new eyes to read. Like what I did there? So new eyes to see and new eyes to read. Because when he engages them, as we, we just saw in Luke uh, 24, and opens their eyes... He says, O foolish ones and slow heart to believe, in verse 25, all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning him. And if you jump down to verse 44 in Luke 24, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and the third day rise from the dead and the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So, so later, these, these disciples on the road to Emmaus encounter Jesus. This is fascinating what happens is that they're going to, uh, away from Jerusalem, a seven-mile journey. Jesus comes with them. They go into the village. He opens their eyes to the scriptures, has the greatest Bible study you've ever experienced in your life. And then what do they do? They bolt back to Jerusalem, like that night. Verse 33, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them uh, gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Like, think about that. Like, this is no short journey. Again, there's no Uber like, hey, i got to get back to Jerusalem. Can you, can you come and get me? They're so excited that they've encountered, their eyes have been opened, they understand the scriptures finally, they're looking through the right uh, uh, angle of the telescope and understanding, oh, all the Old Testament, all the Psalms, all the laws, that was all about him, and now he's here, and Isaiah 3, the suffering, uh, uh, the, the suffering servant is here, and, and now my eyes have been opened, I've got to go tell them, I've got to go meet with the other disciples, and so they go all the way back. And then Jesus does the same thing to them. He opens their eyes so that they can see the scriptures for what they are and all that it points to. Because the reason Jesus gives us new eyes to read is so that we would encounter him. That's the point. Like, do you understand that's what the Bible's for? Like, like I have no 
um, desires to just fill people's heads with good information about the, the intricate, in, uh, intricate details of Hebrew and Greek and all of that if we're not encountering the living Jesus. Like those things have a place, yes and amen. And doctrine has a place, yes and amen. But the reason we, we talk about those things is why? So that you can encounter the living Christ to say, I, here I am, here I am. It's always been about me. Here's why I died. Here's why I rose from the dead. It's to have a living, real relationship with the living God. Or as Peter would say, it's the reason we have a living hope is because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And the scriptures were always meant to point us to that reality. And it's also another reason I think that we need to pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit to guide us and to teach us. Because that's what had to happen on the road to Emmaus, didn't it? They kind of knew the story, but it wasn't until Jesus opened their eyes and their hearts were warm that they could go, oh, I get it now. Oh, I see now. All the law and all the prophets and all the Psalms were pointing to him. Oh, I see why he had to be killed by his enemies. Oh, I see why he was resurrected from the dead to conquer sin and death and hell judgment I, I get it and, and, and so we should be praying for that right it, it's not just you know me and my bible and the holy spirit but the holy spirit does help us but we have teachers and we have other christians that kind of walk with us but we should constantly be praying oh god help our eyes to see help us interpret rightly help us see what you want us to see because if disciples of Jesus who walked with Jesus can interpret things poorly, don't you think we need the help of the Holy Spirit? Any amens? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. I interpret the scriptures perfectly, Pastor. I've never had a wrong thought about God. We all need it, right? The, the comforter, the counselor, the one who teaches us truth, the one who teaches us all the things that Jesus wanted to teach us. And that's why Jesus always says, hey, I got to go away because it's better than I do because I'm sending you this counselor that's going to be your teacher and your guide long after I'm gone, which we'll get to in a few weeks. It's amazing if you study uh, church history or, and read testimonies of people that have encountered this resurrected Christ through the scriptures. Um, I thought of a couple of examples this week. Uh, if you guys are familiar with John Wesley, um, he, he makes a comment about before he was a believer um, and he begins to read the scriptures and, and here's what he says. While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Sounds like Emmaus. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation and an insurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death just by reading the scriptures. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the famous theologian and, and teacher Augustine, St. Augustine, um, in the 4th century, but, but he has a, a crazy testimony where um, he's, he's out in a garden and he hears these child, a child singing a song, and they're singing, pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it. He's like, what? Pick it up and read it. And he actually goes to the scriptures and he, he reads Romans 13. And his eyes are opened he felt his heart was flooded with light, and he turned totally from his life of sin. St. Augustine was a womanizer and struggled with, with all kinds of sexual sins and all kinds of stuff. And he read Romans 13, and God met him and opened his eyes. And he has that famous confession, famous prayer in his confessions, You have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. I think the people walking down Emmaus Road had restless hearts, confused hearts, sad hearts. 
until Jesus met them. I mean, the text says they did, right? They're sad. They're hanging their heads. They're walking back to Jerusalem going, I guess it's all over, guys. We might as well hang it up. Go back to our lives. The Messiah we thought was going to be the Messiah, well, I guess he's just another dead Messiah like all the rest. But, but it's when Jesus in his kindness and in his personal touch comes to us just like you and me who are filled with anxiety and doubt and fear and he says, your heart is always going to be restless without me because you're built for me. I made you. I designed you to, to image me in the world. I designed you to find your true love and your joy ultimately in, in, in us. And that's why C.S. Lewis and other writers have talked so passionately about all these good things in our lives, things we love, things like, like wives and husbands and kids and, and neighbors and friends and good food and, 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 and you know Marvel movies and all these, these great things that we can enjoy and experience. I got a nod from Scott. He's just like, yes, yeah, preach it. Finally, you're, you're finally preaching my language. Um, but they're all pointers, aren't they? Because I, I shared an article with Scott a couple weeks ago that there was a guy who watched the Marvel movie 119 times in a row. Some serious cash being shot out there. But I imagine 110, 111 time, it's not as cool as it was the first, second, third. Right? It begins to lose its steam like anything. And C.S. Lewis would argue there's a reason for that. Why? Because it's a pointer. It's a pointer to heaven. It's a pointer to God that our hearts are built for eternity, that your hearts will always be restless unless Jesus comes and meets you on the Emmaus Road. Because your wife and your husband are not little gods for you, and your kids aren't little gods for you, and your job is not meant to be a god for you. They're they're meant to be good things, and, and God will use those things, and we're not against any of those things. But we know ultimately we're made for God. And so when we're made for God and our hearts find rest in him is that we begin to see those things very differently. And as I've said for nine years, actually you become a better husband and father and worker when you have your open eyes to the reality of Jesus. Because you don't put weight on a thing that's not meant to have ultimate weight. So I don't have to crush my kids under the burden of, you better be a stinking athlete because I'm five foot ten and I didn't go to the NBA. You better be working on that jump shot because I need to live through you. You understand, Noah? Is he in here? I'm saying that tongue in cheek. But he's on a regimen. Protein shakes, thousand free throws a day, you betcha. Right? That's what happens. That, that, that's what happens when I, when I put that burden on, on Christians. You better be perfect. You better have my meals ready. And you better have the house clean and all these things. She's not meant to be that for me. She's not meant to be a God to meet some kind of love void that I have. And yes, she meets a lot of those love voids. We're meant to be together. Yes, we're meant to be married and enjoy that. Marriage is beautiful, but it's not fair for me to crush her under those expectations. And it goes both ways. It doesn't fair to put the burden on ministry or the job to be something it was never meant to be. To find my true joy in those, those things. And our hearts are restless until they rest in him. And so Jesus kindly and mercifully comes to this couple. Some say it's even a married couple, possibly. Cleopas and, and possibly her husband and graciously meets them and gives them new, new eyes to read, to understand the scriptures. And, and I think it's really also important for us as a church, and it's important for you as a, as a Christian, um, if you are a Christian here this morning, is to realize that Jesus is the litmus test for everything. So the scriptures talk that way all the time. You know, if, if we're, you know, 1 John 4, you're probably familiar with this text if you've been around the scriptures at all, but one of Jesus' disciples, John, 
the disciple he loved. I, I love what he wrote in 1 John uh, 4, if I can find it. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for you who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. So our litmus test as Christians is, are they about Jesus? Is it about the the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ when they're preaching the gospel and they're teaching the scriptures and they're talking about Christianity and the gospel? Is Jesus in there? If he's not, I'm walking away. And that's why Jesus was warming their hearts and saying, this is the whole thing. This is the whole reality. This is why the universe works and, and exists is because of me and my redemption and my restoration of all things. So Jesus becomes the litmus test for our lives, that we would test the Spirit and say, hey, is Jesus, is this really about Jesus or something else? Paul talks this way in Colossians 1. How do we mature the church? How do we help us grow up in Christ? Um, Again, if I can find it. Uh, Colossians 1, 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That it's the message of Christ and the gospel revealed through the scriptures, the same faith that the apostles handed down to us, that actually matures us in Christ. That we use Christ to warn, we use Christ to correct, we use Christ to, to teach. It's Him we proclaim so that we would grow up in Christ, we would have the, the wisdom of Christ. Jesus is our wisdom. He shows us how the world works and how reality works and how our lives are to work and how work works and how relationships work. It's all found in Him in the wisdom of God. So Jesus is always the litmus test. And that's why Jesus is meeting this couple on the road to Emmaus. To say, if you miss this, you miss everything. And Paul would later say in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, great reminder for us this morning, 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters of the gospel, I preach to you which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. First important. We can be about a lot of things here at New City Church. And we can lose what's first important. The life and death and resurrection of Christ. That that's how your faith is built. That's how your lives are mature. That everything flows from that. Yes, we want to be salt and light in our community. We want to serve people. Yes, we want to, we want to go after the poor of the poor and, and help the weak and, and wherever God calls us. Yes and amen. But of first importance, it better be driven by the gospel. Because we've met the living Christ. And it's him the reason we do this. It's, it's why we're obedient in the first place. Not to earn God's favor or God's love. It's because he's already loved us. He's already died for us. He's, he's risen for us. 
And, Peter, and uh, Paul would say later that if the resurrection didn't happen, then our faith is futile. What we're doing here is useless. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And so Jesus comes to give us new eyes to see, to really see him for who he is and what he's, he's done. But that has to happen supernaturally. He's given us new eyes so that we can read and understand the scriptures and, and what that means and how he's revealed himself through his life and his death and his resurrection. But he also gives us new eyes to eat. To see, to read, and to eat. Okay, pastor, now you're just getting crazy. All right, where are you going with this? Well, you guys remember the first meal of Scripture? Anybody remember the first meal of Scripture? A little Bible quiz? Come on. Thir- third, yep, third chapter of the Bible. Adam and Eve, right? God creates this beautiful world made in his image, right? He, heavens and earth, light and darkness, all that we see, all that we don't see, everything is there, right? Eve is tempted by Satan to eat of this one tree that Jesus said, or God said, don't eat of this tree. What does she do? She takes the fruit and then she gives it to her husband, right? First meal in scripture. It'll be fine. Our eyes will be open. That's what the serpent said. To have the knowledge of God. Here, go ahead and eat. Now, you say, okay, that, that's interesting. Well, th- this is where sin comes in the, into the picture. This is where death comes into the picture. And this is where destruction comes into the picture. It's why things are on a limp and why things are marred and why things don't work as they should. It's why there's evil in the world. It's because of our first parents and we have that same DNA. But notice what Jesus does in, in Luke 24, 31. He's with his, these disciples. He says, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Do you not know that our hearts burned within us while we talked with us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures? And they rose in the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the, what's the word there? Breaking of bread. Interesting. Breaking of bread. So, so what is Luke trying to say to us as he depicts this account? It's very clear. The new creation has come. That, that what came in death and destruction when our first parents ate the apple, and or it's actually not an apple, when they ate the fruit and sin and, and destruction and chaos came into the world. Now Jesus comes and he breaks bread. He's been resurrected from the dead. And he, and he breaks his bread. And guess what? When he breaks the bread, their eyes are opened. Something's happening in this very simple meal right in front of them. And if you remember in, in, in the, the Last Supper, of course, he, he breaks the bread and he gives the disciples. He says, hey, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to the cross. I'm gonna. So when you, when you gather together, remember what I did. Remember, have your eyes open, have your hearts warm that I'm, I'm coming again. And so Jesus, in a very symbolic, actionable, obvious way, is saying, I'm breaking the bread that sin and death and destruction have no more. And if you fast forward to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they break bread together. It's part of the Christian practice. It's why we do this every Sunday. They share the bread with them. It's, it's a picture of grace. It's a picture of friendship. It's a pre- picture of reconciliation. 
that what started in the fall has now been reversed in the resurrection. And now I'm sharing my life and I'm sharing a meal with you and I'm saying, come who all are thirsty, who are hungry, come and eat with me. This is not accidental. This is not just just random. It's, It's everything that Jesus does, he does for a reason, to show what he is and what he's doing for us. And that's why we need eyes to see the scriptures. That's why we need our eyes open to say, this isn't just Jesus, he's hungry. Yes, he's physically uh, alive. And he says, hey, let's eat, right? But he's doing something. He's breaking it. He's blessing this bread. He's saying sin and, and death and decay don't have the last say. Disciples on the road to Emmaus, I know you are sad and without hope. But you don't need to be anymore. Because I'm here. And I'm giving you eyes to see. I'm giving you eyes to see a sign of a new world where pain and tears and sorrow are, are no more. And, you know, this Jesus' death is not like Lazarus' death or Darius' daughter's death because guess what? They died again. They were resurrected once, but they had to die just like we all die. But Jesus now is physically, bodily resurrected from the dead, giving us a little glimpse of one day when we'll have resurrected bodies just like him. And we'll come into the kingdom and go, let's eat. It's, it's not coincidence that so many metaphors and symbols of the scriptures talk about a, a feast, right? The great wedding feast. Like, that's not metaphor. Like I know we, a lot of us think about you know, heaven being just this like, uh, you know, on clouds and just you know, playing harps and it just sounds so boring just singing all the time. But, but all the imagery is about feasts and about celebration, about ruling and reigning with Christ, about God taking this earth and redeeming it and restoring it to enjoy the things that are here, but to enjoy a way that's not broken and marred and flawed and to enjoy it with resurrected bodies that aren't full of guilt and shame and depression and anxiety and, and bodies that break down, that get full of cancer and inner ear infections that make us dizzy and, and, and all these things, that all those things are gone away, that we can enjoy God and fellowship with him and fellowship with each other for all of eternity. And it's going to involve a lot of eating and drinking and no more cholesterol and no more food shame. Amen? You know what I'm talking about. Just eat red meat. It's not going to kill you. Eggs are good for you. Get over it. All right? So instead of enjoying God's good gifts to us, we, we, we treat them like these, these, these nasty things that we can't be thankful for. Have a cookie. It won't kill you. you know, it doesn't have to be you know, made 100 miles from you know, the, the store or whatever. Just eat it. It's fine. Feasting and celebration. And so as Jesus breaks bread with these disciples, he's giving them a little picture of, of the kingdom that is to come. Now, what's important, I think, for us just to remember is, is that, you know, if we don't have the scriptures, the sacraments of, of the Lord's Supper and obviously baptism are just become magic, right? We're, this isn't just, you know, grab the bread and the cup and have no reason. We don't really understand. That's why we have the scriptures is to, to understand those things. But also, I think it's important that we, the reason I think Jesus gives us this very everyday, ordinary thing so that we don't get lost in just like the intellectual realities of the scriptures and, and, and emotionalism. That, that God's given us this little simple meal that anyone, any person, any ethnicity, any background can take a piece of bread and a cup and remember the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That's what's so powerful when you go and do mission work in other places. Uh, we used to do a lot of work in Mexico. And not a lot of bread in Mexico, but there's tortillas. And there's a lot of Kool-Aid. And so 
Tortillas and Kool-Aid, right? Break, remember me, right? Remember God's grace. Remember God's kingdom. It doesn't matter where you are. And it actually, if you study cultures, you'll see that most of them have some kind of form of bread as their staple, right? So it's this very simple, symbolic meal that we can do anytime, anyplace to remember the life and the death and, and resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus has given us new eyes to eat. New eyes to eat. And then let me let land the plane. But he's also given us good news to tell. He's given us good news to tell. As it kind of winds down in Luke 24, it says in verse 48, You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But say in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Actually, I missed the whole thing there. Um, and the, verse 47, And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Then why is Jesus doing all these things? You know, why is he meeting these disciples on the road and opening their eyes and, and, and showing them that, that, that what he's, he's doing is, is, you know, the scriptures from beginning to end are about him and, and, and you know, meeting them in this simple meal and, and showing them that new creation has, has come is, is why? Because now we have a message of repentance and forgiveness to share with the world. And I know that always sounds like, oh, that's just so harsh, like I'm going to go just tell someone to repent. But the reason why our world is the way it is and why our lives are the way it is is because Jesus has resurrected from the dead and said, hey, there's a, a new uh, creation that has come in and, and death doesn't have the last say and sin doesn't have the last say. But when you try to live out of those bounds and you try to live out of those realities, everything always goes wrong for us. So let's repent and turn from our selfishness. Let's repent and turn from our sin and our evil ways and come back to our maker and our, our, our gracious God who meets us on the Emmaus Road and says, I've come here to open your eyes. I've come to eat with you. I've come to forgive you. Because that's what you need most. I've come to love you and, and lay my life down for you. And out of that reality, as we go as salt and light and preach and proclaim repentance and forgiveness from a gracious God who meets us on the road to Emmaus. I think when we think of meals in the Lord's Supper, I think it's really interesting that um, if you read Luke's Gospel, Jesus is always eating with outcasts and ordinary people all the time. Right? He's either, some would say, he's either going to a party, he's either leaving a party, or he's keeping a party going. That's just the God we serve. But I think all in, in first century culture and hospitality that, that when we just the simple uh, breaking of bread and, and sharing uh, the cup, and, and I think these point to the Lord's Supper as well, is that it's a symbol of grace and friendship and reconciliation. That when you, when you had someone in your home in first century, very different than our days, it was actually you saying to them, you're my friend. We're not enemies any longer. Come and eat with me. And, and when we come to the table, that's what Jesus says to us. You're my friends now. That if you have believed in me, if you believe that, that my death and my resurrection are sufficient and all the things that, that I've shown you in the scriptures, if you believe that, come. You're my friend. Come and experience the grace that I give to you. And I think as we go out in the world and as we just open up our tables with just simple meals, maybe it's QT pizza, whatever we got to do. I'm more that route. It's a lot easier. Maybe it's Costco pizza. They got a fine pie over there. Or a simple meal of soup, or, 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 or a simple meal of sandwiches, or, or, you know, Grubhub that thing. It doesn't matter. But we're saying, you're my friend. Grace to you. Peace to you. Because that's the grace that Jesus has given to me, and so I extend that to you. When we get in city groups, that's why we eat. 
And, and I've been trying to be way more intentional with my family and, and, and just even when we, we eat together. It's just to be, remember how dependent we are on food, but it's just another picture of how God has, has given us everything that we need, even physical support. But also how it points to these realities, that a new creation has come. And that everything has changed because of the resurrection. And so if you're a believer in Christ, please come and, and celebrate the supper with us. The way we take the Lord's Supper is that we have two uh, lines in the front. Break off a piece of the bread, we'll dip in the cup. If you have any kind of allergies, we have some uh, gluten-free, allergy-free bread in the middle. Feel free to take that as well. If you're not a believer, we just ask you to stay seated. We have some uh, prayers in the city life that you can reflect on. But, but I want to just pray for two groups of people in here this morning. Maybe three. Is one group of people this morning I think is important, and maybe you need to lay this before the Lord, is that I think it's been a long time since you've had your heart warmed by the Scriptures. That maybe that, that idea of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, it feels kind of cold and formal right now. Anybody in here? You don't have to raise your hand. Um, but but I, I, I walk through that, and we all walk through that. Not enough people talk about that, that it's supposed to be just a high climb to you know heaven, and we're just always happy and joyful. But there's seasons, there's valleys, Right? So, so maybe there's just a coldness. It's not that you're not a believer. It's not that it's just you feel distant from God. Like I'm just praying because this is what Emmaus Road is about, is praying that God would meet us on our Emmaus Road and awaken our hearts to fresh new pictures of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And then there's others that, that aren't believers at all, that your eyes have not been opened to Christ and the beauties and the mercies of Christ. So my prayer is for you too, that God would open your eyes because he can. And he wants to. And when he does, we can believe and we can trust. And then there's people that are just kind of in between all those things. You just want more of God. You just want to experience more of his love and his grace in your life. And I think the Emmaus Road helps us see that. And it's staying close to Scripture, staying close to Jesus, and asking for it, that you can ask for that. Do you realize that? Like, if that's where you're at, ask for it. He, he wants to give to you graciously. Keep asking. Okay, I've said enough. Let us pray. Father, I do pray um, now for those that just need their hearts warmed like these disciples on the road to Emmaus. God, that you would meet them in grace and power. And maybe they feel far from you. Maybe they're weighed down by anxiety or fear or anger or lust or whatever it may be, God. But you know their hearts. And you're a gracious God. The same God who walked with these disciples at Emmaus is the same God we're talking to right now. You haven't changed. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever that you love to meet people on the Emmaus Road and open their eyes to you, to your glory, to your grace, to your mercy. It's what you do. It's who you are. May they see that. May they believe that, God. Oh, God, help us. And for those that that don't have their eyes opened yet, and maybe they're here because they're curious. And maybe they're here because they were told they had to come here. Maybe they're here because they grew up in the church and that's all they know to do. But God, may you open their eyes to see you and believe that you are the Son of God, that you've come to bring us hope and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And for all of us that are just somewhere in between all of these things, may you meet us this week on our Emmaus Road, wherever we are, to show us again in fresh new ways the beauty and mercies and goodness of our God and King, Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, show us more of who you are. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us.